Uh, so welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission. <clears throat> to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. I don't know if anyone, you, you probably hear this a lot, almost every Sunday, and, and I don't know if anyone's really told us that we have to say that line when we come up on the stage, but it's, it's kind of like Chick-fil-A where you walk in and they say, my pleasure. No one tells them to say, my pleasure, uh, but it's just kind of a part of our culture here. Uh, it's, it's who we are, right? Love Chapel Hill. So simple, so great. Well, hopefully uh, you guys made it here all right. The spring forward is, uh, you know... You've, you've settled in after a week, or maybe you're like me, and you're still trying to work your way into the new schedule, but it's fine. We're here, and we're worshiping together. Amen? So today, we are uh, we're switching a little bit. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew since last December when we were in... Uh, our season of Advent, really. Uh, and we've just kind of been going through the teachings of Jesus... And in our last or our last couple of weeks, we've been talking about soul alignment. We've been talking about the prayers of Jesus for his disciples. And we've been camping out in Matthew chapter 6, speaking about the Lord's Prayer. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about uh, how it forms us, what, what those truths actually mean for our lives, and how as we pray it continuously, it actually begins to align our hearts with the heart of the Father. Okay? Okay. Uh, and today we're moving out of Matthew. It feels kind of interesting. You're almost a trailblazer because we've been in Matthew so long. But we're jumping over to John. We're jumping over to John 17. And if Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, is talking about Jesus uh, just kind of giving the teachings and applications for his disciples, these are like the clean-cut, well-packaged, right, here's what you do, then John 17 is kind of where we're getting Jesus' almost, uh, how, how do you say it, just real, passionate, intimate, authentic prayer to the Father. He's been teaching us and teaching us and teaching us for so long, and then we're in this upper room space. We've had a couple of chapters before John 17 where it's the farewell discourse, and it's Jesus kind of giving his uh, last little bits to his close, close followers. And here we see that we're almost moving from a teaching kind of posture to a modeling posture. The things that Jesus has been teaching us so far, he's now modeling this in this so authentic way before the Father. And we're going to read some of that in a little bit. But uh, I wanted to start out with uh, just a way to kind of put us in the headspace for today's passage. And we'll, we'll have more on John 17 next week. Chris is going to be leading us. Uh, so I'm going to give the, the little bit, the trajectory, and Chris is going to take us deeper into those truths. So N.T. Wright, anyone heard of N.T. Wright? Anyone, anyone an N.T. Wright fan out here? I'm a huge N.T. Wright fan. Big fan. Okay, so... Pardon me. It's a great analogy. Sometimes, like, I have a tendency to not be as practically minded, and somehow N.T. Wright just, like, blows it open. So I'm going to share with you a little bit of what he said, reflecting on John 17, as he's preaching a sermon to uh, some, some pastors who are going through an ordination process. So this is how he, he opens up. He says, some years ago, 
his wife and him, were invited to dinner by a very senior person in another university. He says, after the meal, I asked if I could see the great man's study, his office. He says he, liked, he always liked visiting other people's studies. So he took me into a grand room surrounded by bookcases and oak paneling. It was splendid, but it was a little bit too formal and neat. Everything was very tidy, and he says, I was suspicious. This isn't, I asked, where you actually work, is it? He smiled and led me through a secret door in the paneling. I find myself in a room whose every inch said, this is where the man is truly himself. An exercise bike, family photographs, and sporting trophies. There was even, and he says, I'm still jealous of this several years later, a golf hole in each corner of the office, each with its own particular slant in the floor. And there was also a prayer desk. And N.T. Wright says, I had a sense that you could write the man's biography simply by looking around the room and reporting what you found. And then he says, reading John's gospel is a bit like visiting that house. Many people read the first 10 or a dozen chapters and get a good sense of what's going on. But then St. John goes, well, he invites us a little bit further in into the private quarters of the house, as it were. As the public action stops and Jesus spends time talking with his close friends and explaining to them what's about to happen. So like this personal study with stacks of books everywhere and piles of manuscripts scattered about the room, this personal space seems symbolic of how Jesus speaks to his disciples in the second half of John's Gospel which is often called the book of glory. So if the first part of John's gospel is the book of signs, showing, hey, here's all of the things that are proving who Jesus is, the book of glory is saying, here is how God is revealed. And we'll have a little bit more to say about glory in a bit, but let's let's track here for now. It's often called the book of glory, and more particularly, we see the unrestrained passion that Jesus models in his prayer before the disciples in John 17. So the connection here is that we see Jesus' heart on full display. So if we, as Love Chapel Hill, want to love with the heart of Jesus, this is a great place to really see firsthand, well, not firsthand, secondhand, what Jesus' heart looks like on full display. One person, and I apologize, I cannot recall who, speaks about what is taking place in John, noting that most people track well with the first half, but sometimes we don't make it to the second half, where Jesus is continuously revealing himself, especially leading up to the hour of glory in our passage today and what will come in the following chapters with Jesus' death and resurrection. That, or we go to the teachings, and then we, we, we get to the end, and we, we read about the death and the resurrection. But this, this piece is just so powerful. So it's worth our attention today. So what, what is the point in our introduction? Here it is. In our passage today, we are getting to the prayer that captures the heart of Jesus for those who are following him close, right? So if we are following him close, this is gold for us. So for those who have been tracking with with us during the series, Soul Alignment, you know that we've been navigating our way through the Lord's Prayer and how we are shaped or our hearts are aligned with God's heart through praying in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. One pastor, Albert Tate, 
comments on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Matthew 6, noting that it's almost odd that we call it the Lord's Prayer. And we call our passage today, John 17, the High Priestly Prayer. Now, these are just chapter titles that are added after the fact, but it's still kind of interesting that we think this way. It seems that the Lord's truest prayer from the heart is stemming from John 17. So perhaps he wonders, like, should we refer to John 17 as the Lord's prayer? And then maybe Matthew as the disciples' prayer, because Jesus is teaching how the disciples had to pray? Don't know. But rest assured, this is not a huge dogmatic issue. It's just a thought. It's, again, we're getting into this headspace. But it does offer us a trajectory this morning, and it does raise some questions for us. First, what makes this prayer significant for the alignment of our heart with God's heart? And then second, what is the vision of this prayer for our lives? So today, I'll be tackling the first question, uh, which is, what makes this prayer significant for the alignment of our heart with God's heart? And hopefully next week, Chris will dive more into the content and what that looks like for our unity with God and then with one another. Okay. So let's go ahead and look at the text, shall we? It's always a great thing. Uh, so today for our text, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5. But sometimes when you know, we just need a refresher, we kind of need like the whole piece, right? Just to, just to give us an overview of what we're going to step into. So we'll, we'll go through John 17, and then we'll come back and first focus on 1 through 5. All right. Sorry if my version is a little bit different. I'm reading from the NRSV. John 17, verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Notice that phrase. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you have, that you have gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Jesus goes on, I have made your name known to those whom you have given me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you have given me because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name and that, and that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost. 
so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of those, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. Love that. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me before you love me, before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's a lot, isn't it? It's not just me this morning. It's a lot. A lot of I and them and you, them and me and you and it's just kind of you're, you're you're trying to draw a line and it's you just get this whole squiggly thing, and then it's almost like when we get to the end of that huge squiggly line, you're like, well, it just kind of looks like one one big ball right there, and that you you might be right. You might be right. But there are a few lines in here. I'm not saying that only a few lines matter, but there's a few lines that we're going to talk about today. I was talking with Justin earlier this week, and I told him, you know, it seems like when you're, when you're looking at this high priestly prayer, it's like you're trying to find your way up to this mountaintop, right? You're just climbing a mountain. And then there's a lot of different roads you can kind of take as you're trying to get to this moment where Jesus is interceding to his disciples. There's a lot of things you could camp out on, uh, but there's like only a couple of trails that you really want to look at and really want to take and go for. And he's like, yep, that sounds like it. So as we continue to pray these prayers, uh, our hearts are just going to continually be formed and aligned with God, right? There's going to be things that as we keep praying, some new line is going to stick out to us. Some new uh, truth is going to resonate with us, right? We've been practicing a little bit of the Lectio Divina with some of our devotional times. 
uh, that you might be doing with your small groups. And uh, one of the great things about Lectio Divina is that as you are doing it, sometimes a word that someone gets in that moment is not the same word that another person is getting. And it's just a wonderful way that the Holy Spirit is working within our lives, showing us, hey, here, here is how I am speaking to this group right here and right now. And so what we're going to do, we're, gonna, we're just going to camp out right here in the first five verses uh, that we talked about. Now, if you, if you were paying attention before I got all long-winded and was reading and reading and reading and, you know, your, your mind was going all astray, uh, you'd probably notice, and we can bring up the slides if you want to, it's fine, uh, just, just so you get a quick overview. We see that the word glory, the word glory appears quite a bit. Glorify your son, the, your son. Glory on earth. Glorify me. This is eternal life, right? We have, a, we have a lot of statements that are talking about the glory of the Lord. And maybe it's just me and thinking about this. This was one of the things that came up uh, during preparation. I was thinking to myself, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm almost a victim of semantic satiation, where like you hear a word over and over and over again, and it almost begins to lose its meaning. You're, you're thinking to yourself, glorify, 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 but then there's different senses of the word glorify, and what, is, what does it mean to glorify the Lord? How is Jesus glorifying the Father? How is the Father glorifying the Son? How are we, as the passage continues on, how are we experiencing this sort of glory, and like, what, is, what is going on? Because this seems like it's really crucial for paving the way uh, for what Jesus wants us to understand in this prayer. So is glory, is it something otherworldly? Is it pertaining to our works? Is it just a God thing? Is, but also, like, it's something that humans are participating in as we look at more and more uh, uses of the word glory in Scripture. So I'd like to just kind of camp out right there, if, if you'd... Let me. Before we get there, let's, let's just go, go ahead and give a little summary of what's happening in the text. Let's bring it down. What's happening in the text? In a wonderful summary, uh, still, anti right, love his stuff. Uh, it says, interestingly, Jesus spends far more time in this prayer declaring before the Father who his friends are than he does praying specific things for them have that? You're, you're praying for things, but not necessarily like who you are. Think, think about like the identity questions where you're maybe concerned with like the things in life. But Jesus is just declaring truth over the people who are following him. I'll come back to this in a minute. His friends are those the Father has himself given to him. They are those who know his name, his inner identity and character, because they have seen it in the Son. They are not people who have received his words and who know that Jesus came from God. In other words, they are people who have learned that if you want to know who God is, you must look at Jesus. That if you want to love God, you must learn to love Jesus. And they are already on the night when they will all run away. They're the people in whom Jesus is already glorified. That Shekinah glory, glimpsed in a different form by the prophets, is already present in their midst. And St. Paul, writing to a tiny new church in western Turkey, declares that Christ is in them as the hope of glory. 
the advance sign that one day that glory will flood the whole of creation. So this is essentially, for giving a nice short summary of what's happening in John 17, this is it. So we have a couple of questions. Uh, one is, like, this is eternal life. He's talking about this is eternal life. So how do we know God? Bring the text back up. After Jesus spoke in these words, he looked up to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he says, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that you had in your presence before the world existed. But there in line, or verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you. And how are they knowing the Father? They're knowing him through Jesus Christ. As we move a little bit further on, we, we figure out more of like who the Holy Spirit is. And we know that... Uh, we get to have this communion, this relationship with the Son that points us to the Father. So we're kind of embraced into this triune life. It's God's divine life through what's happening here. One commentator writes, Eternal life is the communion of life and love with the Trinity, knowing the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit talking about eternal life, we also know the Father through our relationship with the Son. We are, as we are doers of the Word and not just hearers of the Word, we grow in our capacity for this type of relationship, right? As we are planted there, uh, we can almost think about Psalm 1 being trees planted beside streams of living waters. As we are there, as we are immersed, uh, as we are planted beside of life itself, Right? We are brought into this life. Now, I promised that we would talk about glory. Sorry, I'm a little bit scatterbrained today. Sometimes that's what happens when you teach middle schoolers. You eventually just get around to what you need to do. All right, so glory. There are several appearances of glory in this excerpt. So, one, Jesus, the eternal begotten Son, experienced glory with the Father since before the world began. So in the, incarnation, though, in the incarnation, though, where Jesus humbles himself, putting on flesh, he actually puts that glory aside in order to enter our humanity fully and bring salvation to us, right? So when Jesus is entering into this prayer, he's praying to the Father. He says, Father, the time is coming, the hour is coming, this thing that has been long anticipated, it's about to happen, please, I mean, it's going to happen because, you know, he's God. But he's saying, like, hey, let's, let's get this thing done. It's kind of acting as a sort of preparation uh, for the cross. And it's made actual through Jesus' death, resurrection, and then his ascension, right? So I want to talk a little bit about uh, words right here. So to use the word glory... We have, we have two fancy words. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a lesson today. Uh, first is a Hebrew word. The next one is a Greek word. So the Hebrew word is called kavod. Everybody say kavod. Kavod. Say it again. 
You guys are wonderful. Uh, the next word is in Greek. It's called doxa. Everyone say doxa. Doxa. Wonderful. So kavod in the Old Testament, doxa in the New Testament. Both are words expressly used to communicate what God's glory is. Okay. So when John speaks of Christ's glory, he is no doubt making a huge claim concerning Christ's divinity. He, he takes this turn that maybe not all of the other writers are going to do in their gospel. Sometimes the uh, word that they use and you kind of splice different endings and stuff onto these words to give it the perfect meaning. And John has a little way of doing his things in Greek, but we don't need to dive into that. We're not in a Greek class, you know, we're just going to stick with the big stuff. But here's the point, when, God, when John is making his claim about glory, he's basically saying in that moment, in that upper room space, like Jesus is God. He has something of the divine essence. If you're confused, hold on a minute, we'll get there. So starting in the Hebrew, Hebrew kavod often means honor. It talks about the weightiness, maybe the importance, maybe the gravity. That's, those are some of the ways that honor gets used. When we see God appearing in a great storm cloud, that is his glory. Kind of cool. So uh, one of the ways you can translate it is this, that which makes God impressive to man or the force of his self-manifestation. Right? So God's glory is what we can see or sense sometimes. Again, the big word here is kind of the weightiness. But when we get to the Greek, though, in the New Testament, <clears throat> doxa, the word glory, the word we have now for glory, is reserved for talking about God's honor and power and more generally to talk about his divine nature, just kind of simply who God is at the end of the day. Okay, And God's glory is something completely other than us. But then somehow we're, we're also images of God, and so we share a sense of his glory. So here the glory of the Lord is the sensible, radiant manifestation of God's awesome presence. Jesus' request for mutual glorification is a request for the divine majesty, the eternal exchange of life and love from God to be revealed in this hour. That's what's happening in John 17, that the sense of the divine nature be with him. So this glory can only be seen, though, through faith. It's one of the interesting things that comes up. Our ability to see God as who he is, this glory that he wants to especially reveal to the disciples, which he says he has revealed to the disciples, we see that through faith. Then concerning the believer a little bit more, talking a little bit about like where we come into the picture, glory extends through, in scriptural terms, sight or participation in God's life. We do that. Again, we're kind, of, we're kind of back to that tree planted beside streams of living water right there in Psalm 1. The people who delight in God's law, the people who uh, love God, who are able to uh, experience that sort of community. That's how we begin to see, that's how we participate by following Christ's example as well. 
So now we experience the hope of glory as persons made in the image of God who know the Father through the Son and with the power of the Holy Spirit moving in us. When we are planted here, that is what begins to take shape in our lives. So when we talk about the glory of God, we also touch on the subject of the image of God. Like I said, where humans image God's glory in a way, we get to the end of the prayer and uh, Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, I have this glory, but I also want to give this glory uh, to my followers who are following me very close. And there's so much we could really tap into on the image of God. But again, that's going to be another day. If you want to have a conversation, we'll talk. We'll talk. But we're moving right along. Is there something, about, is there something glorious about who we are in Christ? If so, what would it be? The answer to the question is yes, there is something glorious about who we are in Christ. The splendor of being image bearers of God. There's almost something more weighty, to, to use that kavod term, when we are true and proper image bearers. John, John Wesley talks about the different ways that we image God. There's the natural image, saying that we're rational creatures. There's the moral image, meaning that we have this capacity for holiness. And then there's the political image, which doesn't refer to politics in the way that we talk about it today, but more of like how we are stewards of creation, how we care for uh, our pets, how we care for our environment, how we uh, think about the well-being of where we are, right? So yes, there's the splendor of being image bearers. In the most simple sense, we are formed and fashioned into God's image. We, we bear part of the image just by being a a rational creature who has that capacity to be holy as God is holy. That's, that's the, the simple part of what it means to have part of God's glory. But then there's also uh, the more complicated sense, <clears throat> the more variable sense, the more uh, maybe impactful sense, start trying to find the best word here, uh, which is where we carry the splendor of image bearers when we model Christ's example when we live according to God's word, when we are formed according to Christ's heart. This is the special instance of being an image bearer. You can almost think of, uh, if anyone's a C.S. Lewis fan, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan, uh, there's a book called The Great Divorce, and he kind of imagines these, these creatures uh, being brought from hell to heaven for a day and just try, trying to imagine what would it be like. And of course, uh, the people who are taking a bus ride from hell up to heaven, they don't enjoy it, and they can't enjoy it. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the weightiness, really, to be able to experience it for what it's worth. And so we think of uh, this formation. We think of being formed and able to be, able to be, how it says, to have the capacity to enjoy God. And again, the prayer, uh, later we will be glorified with Christ, participating in a bodily resurrection like Christ's resurrection and the benefits of experiencing eternal life with him. So we have a little bit of glory in terms of being created in God's image. Then we have a little bit more sense of a glory because we have this capacity for 
sharing God's heart and his life right here in creation. But then we also have another sense of God's glory, which is, hey, we're able to experience eternal life with him. And so there's almost this, uh, this wave you can think of like growing, growing in this image of God, growing in God's glory. And so what's maybe happening as we are here in this image and growing into the image that is uh, just palpable in Jesus' prayer, we are almost aligning ourselves with the heart of the Father as we continue to experience this formation, as we continue to step into the promises that Jesus has for us. So when we talk about soul alignment in John 17, it's, it's this being in communion with God, us being invited into this triune life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we eventually get to the unity in John's prayer. And this occurs by the way of being brought up to the table with the Trinity and being formed by that communion. So, <clears throat> do we have... Do you have the picture of Andre? There we go. All right. So what, what we have up here, this, this is the good visual piece. If, if you're a visual learner, this is for you. Uh, what we have up here is we have Andre Rublov's The Trinity. It was inspired by the Old Testament passage where the three strangers come to visit with Abraham and Abraham is demonstrating his hospitality to them. And so what is here, and this is one of Andre Rublov's most famous icons. Uh, it was in the 1400s and it's probably one of the most famous pieces of Russian iconography, big word, uh, that there is. So what makes it important? Well, first of all, we see the three, we see the Trinity depicted here. We see that they have different uh, robes on, that they all are sitting around a table, symbolizing this communion, right? This uh, community with one another. And they're all kind of bowing inwards. They're all bowing inwards. They're all kind of looking to one another. Uh, you can kind of tell who... Some people say, like, you can't really tell who is who. However, apparently if you're <clears throat> into art and symbolism and all of those great things, then uh, you get a little bit more from the descriptive pieces. So the gold over here is meant to represent the Father, the perfection, fullness, wholeness, and the ultimate source. We have the blue here at the top of the table is the incarnate Christ, both sea and sky mirroring one another. And they, uh, someone says, in the icon, Christ wears blue and holds up his two fingers, telling us that he has put spirit and matter, both divinity and humanity, together with himself. The blue of creation is brilliantly undergirded with the necessary red of suffering. Okay. And then taking the last piece, green, the spirit, the divine, what they call the divine photosynthesis that grows everything from within by transforming light into itself. Uh, and Hildegard of Bingen calls this uh, veriditas, or the greening of all things. Just a subtle name drop there. But you kind of notice in this photo that there is 
how should we say this? The, uh, there's some extra space going involved, or that, that's involved. Uh, note, notice here that at the base of the table, oh, you might have to squint in order to see it. You see this little rectangle piece? This little rectangle piece? Notice how there's almost kind of space at the side of the table? So art historians have uh, kind of supposed that there's something a little bit hidden, something a little bit rich, something that's unique about this icon, and it has to do with this little square here at the bottom. Usually, when we when we look to it, we can just say this is a great depiction of the Trinity. It's a it's a, they have this humble posture to themselves. They would all want to elevate the other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all giving dignity to the other, bowing, the signs of reverence, right? But there's this, and then there's also the Holy Spirit, and he's almost kind of like making a gesture. A gesture as if saying, hey, I've saved you a seat at the table. This spot was for you. In this little square, it's, it's actually kind of like a, a piece of the the canvas where the piece of the backdrop almost is kind of peeled off. Uh, it shouldn't really have any other significance, but when art historians go and look at it, they say, hey, there's a little bit of, it looks like a, like a glue residue. There's kind of a the hole there. It's like something's kind of been ripped off over time or something fell off over time. And what art historians have a best guess about is that at one point in time, when you walked up to this icon, there was actually a mirror that was glued here to the piece of the painting so that when the Holy Spirit is gesturing most likely you to the table, you would be able to see yourself sitting at the table with the triune God to experience the life in the community that they have, or that God has with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so when we look at this prayer, uh, I and you and you and me and uh, each person of the Trinity giving glory to the other and then also passing this along to the followers, that we have this sense that we are being called up to participate in this communion, this community. And part of where we're going to land today we're adamant about coming and being a part of this community, we we love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. I, I opened this morning saying that you know this this is the thing that we say that we're about. We exist to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus, but we can't love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus if we're not with Jesus. If we're not at the table if we're not experiencing this communion, this community, if we're not formed at the table, then our mission, our daily lives, the way that we think about having an impact, 
we'll just kind of go back to Matthew, it'll be like seeds scattered on bad soil, right? When we are formed at the table, we have the vitality for everyday life and the vigor for our work in the world. Whether our paid vocation or our service and giving back, we need a reliable source to form us other than ourselves, to be strengths in the everyday. We need a constant, always faithful communion in the everyday. We need a reliable example to look towards for guidance in the everyday. And we especially need this when the people we trust in are off, or maybe worse, they seem to fail us. But we're invited to the table that doesn't fail us. Once again, Psalm 1 says that God's faithful, righteous followers meditate on God's law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water that yield fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. So those who are planted with life will flourish. Those who sit at the table with the Spirit who invites them will experience the life and ministry afresh and with a renewed lens. And those who walk with the steps of Jesus, who pray as Jesus and love with the heart of Jesus, Chapel Hill, will bear the marks of this community of love and likewise the community of unity like none other. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, We remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, this night from our passage, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He says, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and once he had given thanks, he his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you take these, do it in remembrance of me. As you come to the table today, know that you're not just being invited to the table. You're, you're being invited to the table. You're invited into life with the triune God, and God wants to meet you there. He's inviting you there through the Holy Spirit. As we continue to have our hearts aligned with the heart of Jesus, the heart that fuels us for our ministry in the world, and so much more. Know that this is what you're being invited to. All right. Uh, Anna is going to release us by Rose. And then, yeah, welcome to the table.